as we read the pages of Scripture, and as we read the pages of Scripture, we receive more and more of Christ and more and more of the glory of Christ, and we are transformed more and more into the image of Christ. I want to bring a message to you this morning, and I kind of just want to talk to you, uh, share my heart with you. Um, I get the luxury to do that as a guest speaker. Um, the title of the message this morning is The Glory of the God-Man. The Glory of the God-Man. And I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I really want to ask you this question. As we come into this season we know as Christmas, verse 14 of John chapter 1 is quite fitting. And I'm sure you'll agree with me if you look there in your Bibles. It says there in verse 14, the word became flesh. You know, John the Apostle in the verse 1 there, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I can remember first being saved. I was probably with Samuel and Wasam. I know I would have been and reading that for the first time and being like, what, what does that mean? Well, you know the word there is the Greek word logos. And the Apostle John, in his time of writing, there was all these philosophers and different pagan religions and all these different ways of uh, viewing the world. And they use the word logos to refer to that which communicates. And so John picks up on all of that and says, no, actually, you may use the word logos, the word word, um, to communicate something, but I'm going to show you who the true and eternal communication communicator is uh, in the form of God. And so that's why the word word is there, but the word became flesh. Um, this is the whole idea of God becoming a man, God becoming a man. And I want to ask you this question, why did God in the form of Christ, in the person of Christ, why did there need to be the God-man? Why is it important for Jesus to be both God and to be man? Well, I'll tell you why it's important. God is infinite. And therefore, Jesus being God means that his atonement can be of an infinite worth and atone for an infinite number of people. Um, but also, it's very important that Jesus is man. Why is that? Well, man could only substitute for man. And in order to be our substitute, Jesus had to be just like us. Obviously, he is without sin. And one man can only atone for one other man. But Jesus can actually, uh, being God, he can, as a man, atone for mankind, but more than just one man. Many, many men and women. But there's another layer that I want to add to this, and it's this. Jesus needed to be the Word become flesh, the God-man, not only to atone infinitely of infinite worth, and not only to be the substitute for mankind, but also, and this is very important, but also 
to sympathize with our weaknesses. To sympathize with our weaknesses. You know, to, to be tempted in all ways that we are. This is very important. Jesus is our great high priest. He experiences the very depths of temptation far beyond what you and I were even tempted with. And what do I mean by that? Well, you and I fall and fail. We're tempted and we fail. Jesus as the God man was tempted and didn't fail. He goes far. He exceeds far beyond in his temptations than we ever were. We just fall flat on our face and fail, but the God man never failed. And so those three aspects to the God man are very important. I just want to say those up front. Infinite, able to substitute, and able to sympathize in our weaknesses. Because what I want to say to you, and I say it to my own heart, is that there can be times of success. The Lord looks on how this church, and I trust our church back home and a number of other churches around the place. And I trust he looks on and he says, while you didn't do it perfectly, you were faithful to me and you gathered according to my word and you worshiped me according to my word. We can think, well, we, we were a success. We did that well. Other churches capitulated all around us. They failed. They faltered. They compromised. But we were successful. And we can harbor that in our mind. Or maybe we can look at our life and think, well, I am in a season of success. I'm not experiencing great trial or temptation. My sin doesn't seem to be ever set before me, which I would say is a problem if that is the case for you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're in a season of sorrow. Maybe you're in a season of sorrow. Maybe your heart is breaking. I know it was Charles Spurgeon who said, Preach to broken hearts because in every pew you're sure to find some. And so I know here this morning there are broken hearts. And so maybe you're in a season or even a life of sorrow. Maybe you struggle in your health or your finances or your marriage or whatever it may be. Maybe you're in just that time of suffering. You're walking through the furnace of suffering. So wherever you fall, if you're in a state of spiritual success and you're growing or you're in a sorrow or you're suffering, our passage that I want us to focus on this morning will show us just how much we need Jesus regardless of what state we're in. What state we're in. And so I want you to follow along with me as I read John chapter 1 verses 14 to 18. That'll be our focus and attention this morning. And so let's read that together. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the own begotten from the father full of grace and truth. John, that is John the Baptist, testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. 
No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and acknowledge that this is a holy moment and we are yet often so unholy. We are given to sin, even though a radical transformation has taken place in our very heart, we still sin. We sin against one another. Ultimately, we sin against you. And so we know that we need Jesus. We need good news. We need your spirit to illuminate and guide us now as we worship you in the act of hearing and preaching. And so, Father, would you bless this time? Would it be rich? Would you work a work of grace in us? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You remember the author of the Hebrews. He says in Hebrews chapter 10 that it is vital, really, that our hearts are strengthened by grace and not by food. Strengthened by grace. Grace is such an incredible, you can't even call it a thing because what I want to highlight, and I remember when I first learnt about this, it blew my mind at least, but I'm a pretty simple guy. Wes was waxing eloquently there when he was saying that I'm the theologian. That's not true. John actually, the Apostle John was known throughout church history as John the theologian. We know him as the Apostle whom Christ loved, but he's known from the very earliest of days in church history as John the theologian. Um, grace. It was Sinclair Ferguson who first taught me that grace is not an intrinsic force. Grace is not just a thing. Sometimes we think of grace as just this thing. We speak about it and we're like, what is it? Well, what amazes me is when you survey the Bible, when you consider systematic theology, when you consider bi biblical theology, you'll soon discover that grace is actually Christ himself. We don't receive a force or an energy. We receive Christ himself. We receive Christ at salvation and we continue to receive Christ throughout our life in sanctification. God has what are called the means of grace. The means of grace are so profound. They are amazing. There are both public and private means of grace. And what is meant by means is the, how, how you receive grace, the, the ways in which you receive grace. And remember, when I'm saying grace, it means Christ. How you receive Christ. Because one of the great things that we found such a tragedy in New Zealand when we were faced with the idea of vaccine passports was that the government was asking us to say no to healthy people at the door to receive to come and who wanted to come and receive of Christ and his benefits that's what happens when we come to church we receive of Christ and his benefits let me explain when the word of god is preached the glory of christ is received when we partake of the Lord's table, Christ fellowships with us in a very special and unique way. 
When we witness a baptism, we're reminded of our own baptism. When we partake of baptism, we're obeying Christ. And so all those means, including the preach word, the Lord's table, baptism, are the public means, the way in which we receive more and more of Christ. And so we need more and more of Christ. And here in our passage, we're going to see three immense activities of the God-man so that we can receive more and more of Christ. Because as I said, if this is a successful time for you, if this is a sorrowful time for you, we all ongoingly need Jesus. We need good news. And I always seek to give an outline in any passage uh, for you to hang your thoughts upon, notes upon. I'm obviously done so again this morning, but I do want to let you know for this morning at least, I couldn't go past drawing from and then adapting a tad. One of my professors at seminary, stemming from a remark that he made back in 2012, it's just too good to let my ego kind of get in the way of giving you something that I've made up. And so in verses 14 to 18 in John chapter 1, if you're taking notes, we're going to see, number one, Jesus displays glory in verses 14 and 15. And then second, we're going to see Jesus dispenses grace in verses 16 to 17. And then finally, we're going to see, number three, Jesus defines God in verse 18. And so Jesus displays glory, Jesus dispenses grace, and Jesus defines God. That's the skeleton there. And now let's allow the passage itself, the word of God itself, to act as meat on the bones, if you will. I made mention of the Logos, the word. Speaking of the eternal son, Jesus always existed as the son. He didn't assume the role of a son. That is incorrect. Jesus was the eternal son, the Logos, and he obviously took on a human nature. And verse 14 remarkably tells us that he dwelt among us. You know this, the first 18 verses of this opening chapter of John 1 are called the prologue. They're like a table of contents contained within those first 18 verses are all that will be mentioned of in the remainder of the gospel. It's quite remarkable, really, to study it. But the first 18 verses there are the prologue. Once you hit verse 19, you're off into the gospel narrative proper. But there's a lesson, as I said. There's a lesson here for us from our passage. Those first four words, the word became flesh. We need to consider those a little bit before we get to the truth that Jesus displays glory, that he gives grace and that he defines God. We need to talk a little bit about the miracle of all miracles. It's Christmas time. The word became flesh. The son as the eternal one took on a human nature. We need to look at what that does not mean first, just so we can understand what it truly means for the word to become flesh. What is not meant there is that the word becoming flesh, becoming human nature, it doesn't mean that Jesus is no longer God. We know that, right? 
we know that Jesus is no longer, it doesn't mean that Jesus is no longer God and now simply just a man. No, he's the eternal son. He didn't cease to be God when he took on a human nature. And so when we think of the son, who, by the way, would go on to be given the name Jesus, wouldn't he? he he's eternally the son, but he, he's, he goes on to be given the name Jesus at his birth. And so we mustn't think that there was anything of his divine nature laid aside when he became flesh. The Father and the Spirit remain, but the Son, when he took on the human nature, he's not removed from the Trinity. We don't have a divided triune Godhead. What does happen at the incarnation when the Word becomes flesh is that the second member of the Trinity, the Son, moves from being God to being the God Man, And what that means is that there's no change in the divine nature at all when Jesus comes into the world. There's no change in the divine nature. His divine nature is his for all eternity. And get this, his two natures in one person as the God-man will also be his for all eternity. You know, when Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. He obviously lived for us. He kept the righteous requirements of the law. You know, the law includes righteous requirements, but also penal sanctions. And what that means is the law says you must keep this. And the law also says if you don't keep this, there's a penalty. One of the beautiful things about the word becoming flesh is that Jesus kept the law that you and I could never keep. And then he died a death that you and I could never die. And so as Jesus lived and died, he was, as he was living and keeping all the law, he was amassing for himself a righteousness that he would then clothe you and I with. Because we have no righteousness of our own. This is a beautiful, glorious, and grand truth. This is called the active obedience of Christ. And there truly is, as has been well said, no hope without it. You and I could never keep the law. He did. You and I could certainly never die the death he did. And he did that for us. And so I say that because when we go to be with Christ in glory, or if we're alive when Christ returns, he's not going to return as some spirit or some giant figure He's going to return as the God-man. When he entered into glory, that was the first time the God-man, or should I say, a, the God with a human, human nature, entered back up into heaven. Could you imagine this scene? When Jesus ascends, the angels are all there. Psalm 24 tells you about it. The angels are all there. And then the son returns as a man. The scene would have been startling. Well, he will return just like that and we will see him as he is. And so I say that because, young children, listen to me. Sometimes we think heaven is like this. And I did when I was first saved. We think of heaven as just like this land with clouds and everything is kind of all mysterious. No, no. Jesus will be very real. He will look like a man. He'll be right here. And when we go to heaven, there'll be grass. It'll be real. It's not some fairy tale. This is the God man. 
This is the God man. He'll be visible, he'll be recognizable. Jesus, in his arrival here when he becomes flesh, and also for all eternity to come, is a mysterious union of not part God and part man, but truly and fully God and truly and fully man. And to think of this, I realize, is goes beyond what our finite mind can comprehend. There was a change that occurred at the incarnation, but it was not a change in the divine nature. And so think of Jesus as the God-man. One person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature without sin. And it's in that divine and human nature union that one person undivided exists. It's quite remarkable. And I say all of that because from that basis, from that very existence as the God-man, flow three immense activities by Jesus that we'll look at this morning that will give us more of him because we need more of him. And so in verses 14 to 15, we see first, number one, Jesus displays Glory. Look again at verse 14 with me in your Bibles. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory, is a, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Maybe you're holding a Bible in your hand that has removed the word begotten. I don't want to get into it now, but I want to say to you that if you have a Bible that has removed the word begotten, I don't want to tell you to get another Bible because all Bibles has four have issues and foibles. But that word begotten is so incredibly important. In John 3.16, many have removed the word begotten, just thinking it's a little confusing, it's kind of strange. I want to encourage you at some point, if you haven't already, maybe Pastor Wes has already instructed you in this, but go and study the begottenness of the Son and what it means for the Son to be begotten of the Father. But anyway... The divine son here took on a human nature. He was born of a virgin, right? What is the importance of the eternal son being born of a virgin? We just went from discourse to dialogue. Meaning, I'm, gonna, I'm asking you a question and I'm not going to move until someone at least has an opportunity to answer it. Because remember, I'm just sharing my heart with you this morning. What is the importance of the virgin birth? I'll tell you. The importance of the virgin birth means that the eternal son bypasses, he is immune from the inherited sin of Adam. That's what's so beautiful about the virgin birth. So he, be, he, he became flesh, he took on a human nature. He, but then look what it says next, he dwelt among us. John writes, he dwelt among us. The Greek literally says, and he pitched a tent among us. Some of you are going to go away on holiday over summer. You may pitch a tent. What does it mean that Jesus took on a human nature, became flesh, and then pitched a tent? He pitched a tent among us. That's remarkable, really. And it immediately draws us to the Old Testament, doesn't it? The Old Testament setting. Yahweh said to Moses, Pitch a tent. 
the pitched tent being the tabernacle, what happened there? Well, God would come and meet His people, wouldn't He? He would come and meet with His people. That's where His presence was to be found in the form of a, a cloud. Exodus 25 verse 8 says, Yahweh says, Have Israel construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. God would dwell with Israel in the form of a Shekinah glory cloud, as I said. And Moses, wasn't he? Moses was unable to enter at times. According to Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 to 35, because the glory of Yahweh in the form of a cloud so filled the tabernacle, Moses was unable to enter. The same was said of the priests inside the temple. According to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10 and 11, it says this. Let me read it for you. When the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of Yahweh so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh had filled the house of Yahweh. And so in those days, God made himself evident, manifested himself, the charismatics like to hijack that term, and they do. But God was manifest by appearing in a cloud of glory. And so what John is saying here in verse 14 is that God now dwells among us, not in the form of a cloud, but in the form of a person, the Lord Jesus. And you know what? There is greater clarity and greater fullness, you could say, in a divine person than in a cloud. There is greater clarity when you look full into the face of Jesus than in a cloud. And so we must understand Jesus as being the most visible manifestation of God. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews was Driving out in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Very familiar passage. You know that very well. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, through whom he also made the world. And he, that is the Son, is the exact radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. So he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And so Jesus, who took on a human nature, is the fullest expression of God to us. And when you think about it further, it was only in the pitched tent or in the tabernacle or later on in the temple that Israel could come and worship God. It's the only place they could come and Worship God as he dwelt among them. But in these days, we don't have to go to a certain location. The church is not the building, even though the gathered people meet in the building. The church can gather anywhere in any place on the Lord's Day. But it's only through Jesus whom they worship can they offer true worship, acceptable and pleasing to God. That means that all other alleged means of access are denied. That's what that means. All other means of access are denied. Each false man-made religion in the world is denied 
because they reject the true Jesus. They many times commandeer a quasi-Jesus who's not truly God, you know, the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness and the like. And so the glory of God is found in the person of Christ, and that's the only person and place true worship can be found. But John really does kind of attest to all of this now in the remainder of verse 14 when he says, and we saw his glory. We saw his glory. So we know of the glory in the Old Testament, but we saw his glory. He, he is the attestation of the truthfulness of who God is because we saw his glory. John's saying it's not some uh, sub-par glory. He's not saying that it's some other glory. He's saying we saw his glory. It's glory, look there, as of the only begotten from the Father. You know, the scope of that phrase, and we saw his glory, is debated as to what it actually means. Some want to narrow that down. When John says, we saw his glory, what does that mean? Some want to narrow it down just to mean the transfiguration. You remember where John himself, along with Peter and James, were up on a mountain and they saw the physical manifestation of the glory of God when according to Matthew chapter 17 verse 2 it says Jesus' face shone or shone depending on which country you've lived in. I've lived in a few. I get confused about that. My daughter reminded me of that last night. When Jesus' face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. Someone to narrow it down to that, but I don't believe that it's just that. It includes that, but it also includes glory displayed through Jesus in other ways. Let me show you. Flick ahead with me to verse 11 of John chapter 2, and I'll keep you busy a little bit. Verse 11 of John chapter 2, this is obviously the wedding at Cana, which would have been a wonderful time. Never ever think that we Christians don't have fun. This would have been an immensely fun time. There would have been music and food and drink and laughter and it went for a long time too but look at verse 11 this beginning of his signs jesus did in cana of galilee and there it is manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him and so look now at verse 11 Sorry, verse 4 of chapter 11. Flick with me to chapter 11 and look at verse 4. You know this account very well. Lazarus being raised to life. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. John writes, and we saw his glory. His glory was made evident through the miracle that he performed at the wedding, through the raising of Lazarus. Look at verse 40 of John 11. And I love this verse. This is a dear verse. Look at verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you, that if you believe, 
you will see the glory of God. The moment John himself and the moment all else are born of God when they believe, because we're born of God first and then we believe, right? Regeneration comes before faith. This is a grand truth. We, are, we don't believe and are then born again. We are born again and then we believe. Don't get that twisted or confused. When we are born of God, we then believe and then we see the glory of God. Where do we see the glory of God? We see it in the person of Jesus. Now, for sure, John and the disciples, they personally saw Jesus. You ever personally seen Jesus? Um, my wife Lisa and Samuel grew up together in a charismatic church. Well, they could tell you they know a few people who've said they've personally seen Jesus. I think one even knocked at the door and said, hey, I've seen Jesus. No, no. They saw Jesus personally. They saw his glory manifested not only in miracles, but I want to tell you another way that Jesus manifested his glory. He manifested his glory in the ways that he manifested the attributes of God, such as when he preached and spoke the truth of God, such as when he displayed the love of God, such as when he showed compassion and overflowed in mercy. They saw that physically. We didn't. But we must never think that because we didn't see Jesus physically with our eyes, like the apostle did and like the disciples did, that we're somehow shortchanged. Or that all of this is not applicable to us in some way and we're kind of removed from John's words in verse 14, we saw his glory. No, no, not at all. We mustn't think that the glory of God in the person of Christ is not available to us like it was so freely, physically available to them. I'll tell you why. Because we should not think, and this really changed my life, and I'll tell you, we should not think of the glory of Jesus as some bright shining light or some feeling or a cloud or some, something that's radiating physically to us that we kind of stare at and are blinded by. That's not how it works. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I want to show you how it does work. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 4 when you get there. The Apostle Paul is talking about the God of this world. The devil has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not, look at this, see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is, by the way, 
the image of God, the exact representation of God. Verse 5, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6, for God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown or shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The glory that Jesus displays when he pitched a tent among us is a spiritual sight rather than a physical sight. It's not a glory that you and I see with our physical eyes, but a glory we see with the eyes of our heart. Because God has taken the reality of the incarnate Christ as the basis for which he shines the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. Let that sink in. Don't let that fly by. I'll say it again. Because God has taken the reality of the incarnate Christ, the word becoming flesh, as the basis for which he shines the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ into our hearts with the express purpose of us being able to see, not with physical eyes, but with spiritual eyes of our heart. Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, that the eyes of our hearts may be opened. And by grace and on the basis of the word becoming flesh, we believe unto salvation and then we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Now, where is what is the ultimate, superior, primary, place where we can behold the face of Jesus. That's right here. This is where we see Jesus face to face. We don't run to some mystical encounter. God has ordained that the glory of Christ is revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. Our brother read it just before, but look up with me to verse 18 of chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord Jesus, are being transformed into the same image from one level of glory to another, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. As the Spirit of God regenerates our heart, we are then given eyes to see the truth of who Jesus is as we read the pages of Scripture. And as we read the pages of Scripture, we receive more and more of Christ and more and more of the glory of Christ. And we are transformed more and more into the image of Christ. The again, I just, I'm just talking to you. When I was first saved, when Samuel... And Wasam led me to the Lord. We started attending said church, and everything was always had to be wild and lofty and extraordinary. 
And it took me a while to learn that no, no, God walks through the very ordinary. And you know, the Reformed have understood throughout church history that the means of grace, they call them the ordinary means of grace. We are sanctified, we are grown, but get this, we're also stabilized and given stamina by very ordinary means. And we need those. We need those. So we don't see with our eyes physically. We see with our ears, you could say. We see when we hear the word of God preached, when we read the word of God, when we hear it, Jesus displays glory. And what that means here is that we need to read it, the Word of God. We need to hear it. We need to behold it. When we're told that we behold the glory of Christ, it means that we study the person of Christ. The word behold means to study intently with the purpose to know. Studying intently with the purpose to know. It takes work. It takes work. My wife and I, Lisa and I, were married here in Melbourne. And the jeweler that we used for our wedding rings used to babysit me. And every time we come back to Melbourne, he takes them and he cleans them and he polishes them and he plates them and they come back really sparkly. He did work on them. We took them to the jeweler in Carlton. We drove and got in our car and drove to the jeweler in Carlton and we got back our wedding rings all bright and shiny. They were transformed. If we just stayed in our apartment and didn't go anywhere, there would be no transformation. The same is true in the spiritual life. If we just sit and don't expose ourselves to the God-ordained means by which God has ordained for us to grow, then there'll be no transformation, just stagnation. And maybe that's another S to add to the success and suffering and sorrow. Maybe you're here in a state of stagnation this morning. Maybe you're feeling spiritually stagnant. I know what that feels like. Or maybe you're here in a, in a stressful situation. I also know what that feels like. My wife are here and family are here on a beautiful holiday, but there's still stressful moments as we sin against one another, when we're impatient, unkind with one another. We always need Jesus. And that's why I don't have to exhort Saving Grace Bible Church to know how precious a means of grace it is to gather on the Lord's Day. You know experientially how precious it is to be readjusted and to be given stamina in your heart and mind on the Lord's Day as you go out and battle Satan in your own flesh during the week. I don't have to exhort this precious church to have a higher view of the Lord's gathering. But remember what I said at the start, that success can still that success still needs Jesus all the time, all the time. And so let's, let's study intently with the purpose to know, and then we'll all be transformed. 
by it. And so first, Jesus displays glory in verse 14. And verse 15, we'll just touch on it, but I do not want you to miss the significance of it. It really serves as a parenthesis or afterthought about John the Baptist. Look at verse 15 again. The main idea there really when we hear about the testimony of John, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I before he existed before me. We know John the Baptist physically was six months older, right? John the Baptist looks on and says, well, no, he existed before me. He knew he was the eternal son. The main idea there is that Jesus existed before John, therefore he is superior to John. Jesus is superior to the cloud in the desert and Jesus is superior to that Baptist who went out into the desert. That's the first immense activity that kind of overflows and out of the basis of Jesus being the God-man. The second one now is that Jesus dispenses grace in verses 16 to 17. To see this, we need to kind of look back on that little end phrase of verse 14, full of grace and truth. Take that little phrase, full of grace and truth, and then read with me verses 16 to 17. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus is full of grace. He's full of truth. We have received from his fullness and then also grace and grace and an ever-flowing, continual aspect of grace. This is remarkable truth here. John is saying in verse 16 that in Jesus there is the fullness of divinity, of deity. There is in Jesus the fullness of the love between the Father and the Son in the Trinity. There is the fullness of God's glorious perfections And it's from that fullness that dwells in Christ, the one who became flesh, that we receive. We receive not divine attributes as though all of a sudden we become all-powerful, omnipotent, or all-knowing, omniscient, or all-present, omnipresence. We don't receive those things from the fullness of Christ but we receive the loving kindness and mercy and love of God in the person of Christ. And you and I need the loving kindness and mercy of God, not just on the day that you committed your life to Jesus, but today and tomorrow and every other day. From that fullness, we have received. It's all bound up in Christ who is the complete communication of God's grace. He's the full articulation of God's truth. He is full of grace and truth. It's from out of that storehouse of fullness that we've been showered with love and mercy. From the one who is divine in his nature, in possession of a human nature, in a mysterious hypostatic union from the fullness we've been showered. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. It says, For in Him, that is Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And because of that fullness of the divine nature, we who are united to Christ, study the doctrine of the union of Christ. It is just so rich and will warm your heart blow your mind. We are united to Jesus. 
through adoption as sons and daughters, in that union and in that adoption, God has supplied to us through Christ all that we need, all the love and kindness and mercy that we need. But more than that, more than that, look at the end phrase of verse 16 there. Grace upon grace. This is a little staggering, this phrase. In one way, it's certainly staggering because it serves to show us, to highlight to us that it never runs out. That's the idea there. It just continues grace and grace and grace, both saving grace when we were saved from the fullness of that loving kindness and mercy, but also enabling and sanctifying grace. You know, John Calvin said of this verse, I want to give you a little phrase here in the Latin. I'll say it first in Latin. You can tell me Arabic after, although I know a little bit. I grew up in Coburg. But I'll give you a little bit of Latin. Duplex gratia. Double graces. Duplex gratia. Double graces. There's two graces in verse 16, grace and grace, grace upon grace, meaning this. What John Calvin meant by duplex gratia was that we have Christ for pardon and we have Christ for power. We have Christ for us in our justification and we have Christ in us for our sanctification. The duplex gratia is a beautiful truth. Grace upon grace. Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Christ for the sanctification in our life. Again, through Christ, God will supply us and does supply us with all that we need and there will not be an end to enabling, sustaining grace. Yet, you and I have to get in the car and drive to the jeweler. If we don't get in the car and drive to the jeweler, then we're not laying hold of that which we've been showered with. We're not appropriating the preciousness of what we have received. We're like adopted, spoilt children. Verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Again, this is all under the heading that Jesus dispenses grace. I want you to understand from verse 17 that this is not a backhand at the law. Sometimes in our evangelical circles, we can have a shallow surface understanding that we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. And we can even go to the Bible verse in Romans that says that. But the reality is, is that the law is good. As new covenant believers, as adopted children, as those who have received the new birth, our relationship to the law has changed. What do I mean by that? Prior, we were condemned under the law. The law was that beautiful, sometimes harsh schoolmaster who led us to Christ because it just condemns us. And yet, the law 
is also for the believer a rule and a guide of faith and practice. We need the law. This is not a backhand at the law. The law was given by God through Moses. It's good and holy, but it doesn't save you. This is what John's getting at. It doesn't save you. It only condemns you. There's no grace in the law. It condemns you. The law was something that was graciously given by God to show mankind our sinfulness, but the law is not an instrument of saving grace. It shows sinners their need for salvation, but the law offers and provides no salvation. It's been well said that the law condemns and Jesus offers and gives. And so what John is saying in verse 17 is that Jesus who has come, who has become flesh, it's he who dispenses grace. He dispenses grace. He is full of grace and truth, and he just dispenses that grace. John is not negating the goodness and holiness of the law, because when you think about it, the law itself, didn't it? The law itself anticipated the arrival of the Messiah one day. What John is doing is he's highlighting for us that Jesus is the realization of the promise to come spoken of in the Old Testament law. John is saying that salvation and sanctification was not available by the law and that salvation and sanctification is realized and attained through Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 3 Verses 5 and 6 says this, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be spoken later, but Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the law. Jesus is the fullest expression of the fullness of God. He's full of grace and truth. He dispenses grace. He gives of himself. When you privately read and privately pray, you receive more of Christ. When you publicly read and publicly pray, you receive more and more of Christ himself. He gives himself. The third and final now immense activity that flows out of Jesus being the God-man is heading number three. Jesus defines God. Just very quickly, verse 18, Jesus defines God. We've seen that Jesus displays glory. We've seen that Jesus dispenses grace. And here we are now. Jesus defines God. Look at verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. No one has seen God at any time. Park that thought for a moment. The only begotten, there it is again, begotten, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. That's the final verse in the table of contents that I mentioned earlier. The first 18 verses, prologue, table of contents, all that happens later on is revealed in these first 18 verses. That's the final verse. That final verse is a little like the first verse. Look at John 1.1 1, 1 with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John the theologian seeking to break your brain. 
This is good for you. Jesus will go on to say in this gospel, things like, I and the Father are one. Broken brain. Your brain is broken. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father, says the eternal Son. You, you, And you know this when Moses prayed earnestly. What did he pray? Show me your glory. Show me your glory. Moses had to hide between two rocks as God passed by in a cloud. He was not allowed to see God. The Old Testament would echo that theme over and over again. And so what makes the word becoming flesh... So fresh, if you will. What makes it so fresh is that spiritual lights have been turned on in our hearts where we are given eyes to see in our hearts through the work of Jesus on the cross as that tore the veil and then tore down the dividing barrier wall that existed between man being able to not only know God, but to see God. This is profound truth right here. God cannot be known without Christ, that is for certain, but God cannot even be seen apart from Christ. And get this, no one has seen God, but God is seen and known through Jesus Christ. Prior to the Word becoming flesh, no one had seen God. Now. You and I, having received by sovereign grace the new birth regeneration, we see God in the person of Jesus. Because Jesus is the very explanation of God. It says there in verse 18 that only he has explained him. That word explained there in the Greek is a Greek word. I'm going to say it to you. Exegeomai. What do you hear in there? Exegesis. Exegeomai. Exegesis, obviously, the, in, the process of interpreting the Bible. John is saying there is only one exegete of God. Only one. Only one who is able to explain God fully. Only one who is able to reveal God fully. The eternal Son who is one with God and also distinct from God. He is in the beginning with God and He is also God Himself. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, listen to this. I just love this. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. Did Jesus end there? No. He said this. And listen to this. And to those whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. If you're here this morning, born again, the Son chose to bring you in to the eternal love between the Father and the Son that flowing out from that love, you might experience that love and be adopted in and taken by grace not just to the Father as a sinner 
guilty, declared not guilty, but taken to the Father to then share in what the Son has only ever eternally shared in, and that is sonship. Being adopted as a child of God. This is receiving Christ here today. The glory of God in the pages of Scripture giving us what we need, and that is Jesus. I need Jesus. And so Jesus displays glory. He dispenses grace and he defines God. The Gospel of John has as its purpose to provide for us the basis for all truth that the Son of God became flesh and pitched a tent among us and became the means by which we see the glory of God. Jesus said in John chapter 11, verse 40, I read it before, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? We have the God-man who is infinite, who's able to be our substitute, and who's able to sympathize with us in our very weaknesses. And as a result of becoming flesh, we receive glory and grace and the very definition of who God is. I think I'll leave it there, but I want to just say one last thing. I couldn't allow this to escape my mind. As we considered the word becoming flesh and all that we have this morning, I just couldn't escape the fact that when the word becomes flesh and he comes and he lives and he dies for all those that were given to him from eternity past when the father gave to the son a precious people that would be redeemed and then having redeemed them, the Spirit of God would then come down through time and regenerate them and apply to them and pour into them all the purchased blessings of Jesus upon the cross. And so Jesus then can pray in John 17, all those that you gave me, I died for them and they kept their word, please keep them. I did everything for them. There were others out in the world. I didn't do it for them. I did it for those that you gave me, Father. When I think of all of that, I can't help but think that we were in such a dire place. We had a threefold malady. We were darkened in our understanding. We were continually hostile towards God and we were ignorant towards God. And the word became flesh and when he lived, he lived as a prophet. And he spoke like no man had ever spoken before. He was the only one who could explain God. That was a prophet. But he also lived as a priest. He lived as a priest in that he, he, he took us where we couldn't go. A priest, he, he, he gave us access to God. And then in light of all of that, he served as a king. Where he, he looked upon us and he subdued our sinful desires. 
and he summoned us to himself and subdued those sinful desires and then altered our affections and then he reigns over us as king. The word became flesh and he is and will ever be our prophet, priest and king. And let all God's people say,